Well, hello again. Today, as promised, I'm going to read more Orwell uh, after my Orwellian rambles uh, down La Rambla and elsewhere in Barcelona. It seemed appropriate um, to read uh, Orwell on the Spanish Civil War. Today, I'm going to read from his essay, Looking Back on the Spanish War, which was published in about 1942. So it's uh, you know, a good few years after he returned from Spain. It's in the middle of the Second World War. And if the latency of Animal Farm in 1984 was, uh, or rather if the, if the, uh, creative inspiration for Animal Farm in 1984 was latent in homage to Catalonia, it becomes through very explicitly in this essay. Now I did look, uh, and it's an essay I've read quite a few times over the years, uh, I realise it's actually quite lengthy, so I'm going to see how, uh, how I get on, uh, and if this seems to be going on for far too long by the time I come to a certain part then I will cease reading and uh, do a part two. Um, we'll just have to leave it uh, for, for the next time I do one of these. But for now, let us begin. First of all, the physical memories, the sounds, the smells and the surfaces of things. It is curious that more vividly than anything that came afterwards in the Spanish War, I remember the week of so-called training that we received before being sent to the front. The huge cavalry barracks in Barcelona with its drafty stables and cobbled yards, the icy cold of the pump where one washed, the filthy meals made tolerable by pannikins of wine, the trousered militia women chopping firewood, and the roll call in the early mornings, where my prosaic English name made a sort of comic interlude among the resounding Spanish ones, Manuel González, Pedro Aguilar, Ramón Feneosa, Roque Balastar, Jaime Dominic, Sebastián Viltrón, Ramón Nuvo Bosch. I named those particular men because I remember the faces of all of them except for two who were mere riffraff and have doubtless become good phalangists by this time. It is probable that all of them are dead. Two of them I know to be dead. The eldest would have been about 25, the youngest 16. One of the essential experiences of war is never to be able to escape from disgusting smells of human origin. Latrines are an overworked subject in war literature, and I would not mention them if it were not that the latrine in our barracks did its necessary bit towards puncturing my own illusions about the Spanish Civil War. The Latin type of latrine at which you have to squat is bad enough at its best, but these were made of some kind of polished stone so slippery that it was all you could do to keep on your feet. In addition, they were always blocked. Now, I have plenty of other disgusting things in my memory, but I believe it was these latrines that first brought home to me the thought so often to recur. Here we are, soldiers of a revolutionary army, defending democracy against fascism, fighting a war which is about something, 
and the detail of our lives is just as sordid and degrading as it could be in prison, let alone in a bourgeois army. Many other things reinforced this impression later. For instance, the boredom and animal hunger of trench life, the squalid intrigues over scraps of food, the mean nagging quarrels which people exhausted by lack of sleep indulge in. The essential horror of army life, whoever has been a soldier will know what I mean by the essential horror of army life, is barely affected by the nature of the war you happen to be fighting in. Discipline, for instance, is ultimately the same in all armies. Orders have to be obeyed and enforced by punishment if necessary. The relationship of officer and man has to be the relationship of superior and inferior. The picture of war set forth in books like All Quiet on the Western Front is substantially true. Bullets hurt, corpses stink, men under fire are often so frightened that they wet their trousers. It is true that the social background from which an army springs will colour its training, tactics and general efficiency, and also that the consciousness of being in the right can bolster up morale, though this affects the civilian population more than the troops. People forget that a soldier anywhere near the front line is usually too hungry, or frightened, or cold, or, above all, too tired to bother about the political origins of the war. But the laws of nature are not suspended for a red army any more than for a white one. A louse is a louse, and a bomb is a bomb, even though the cause you are fighting for happens to be just. Why is it worthwhile to point out anything so obvious? because the bulk of the British and American intelligentsia were manifestly unaware of it then and are now. Our memories are short nowadays, but look back a bit, dig out the files of New Masses or The Daily Worker, and just have a look at the romantic warmongering muck that our left-wingers were spilling at that time. All the stale old phrases, and the unimaginative callousness of it. The sang-froid with which, the sang-froid with which London faced the bombing of Madrid. Here I am not bothering about the counter-propagandists of the right, the Lunds, Garvins, et hoc genus. They go without saying. But here were the very people who for 20 years had hooted and jeered at the glory of war, at atrocity stories, at patriotism, even at physical courage, coming out with stuff that the alteration of a few names would have fitted into the Daily Mail of 1918. If there was one thing that the British intelligentsia were committed to, it was the debunking version of war, the theory that war is all corpses and latrines and never leads to any good result. Well, the same people who in 1933 sniggered pityingly if you said that in certain circumstances you would fight for your country, in 1937 were denouncing you as a Trotsky fascist if you suggested that the stories in new masses about freshly wounded men clamouring to get back into the fighting might be exaggerated. And the left intelligentsia made their swing over from war as hell to war as glorious, not only with no sense of incongruity, but almost without any intervening stage. Later, the bulk of them were to make other transitions equally violent. There must be a quite large number of people, a sort of central core of the intelligentsia, who approved the King and Country Declaration in 1935, shouted for a firm line against Germany in 1937, supported the People's Convention in 1940, and are demanding a second front now. As far as the mass of the people go, 
the extraordinary swings of opinion which occur nowadays, the emotions which can be turned on and off like a tap, are the result of newspaper and radio hypnosis. In the intelligentsia, I should say, they result rather from money and mere physical safety. At a given moment, they may be pro-war or anti-war, but in either case, they have no realistic picture of war in their minds. When they enthused over the Spanish War, they knew, of course, that people were being killed and that to be killed is unpleasant, but they did feel that for a soldier in the Spanish Republican Army, the experience of war was somehow not degrading. Somehow, the latrines stank less, discipline was less irksome. You have only to glance at the new statesmen to see that they believed that. Exactly similar blah is being written about the Red Army at this moment. We have become too civilised to grasp the obvious. For the truth is very simple. To survive, you often have to fight. And to fight, you have to dirty yourself. War is evil, and it is often the lesser evil. Those who take the sword perish by the sword, and those who don't take the sword perish by smelly diseases. The fact that such a plastitude is worth writing down shows what the years of rentier capitalism have done to us. I should have said that um, that um, um, the essay is divided into sort of many chapters. Uh, that was part one, uh, and now I'll move on to part two. In connection with what I have just said, a footnote on atrocities. I have little direct evidence about the atrocities in the Spanish Civil War. I know that some were committed by the Republicans, and far more, they are still continuing, by the fascists. But what impressed me then, and has impressed me ever since, is that atrocities are believed in or disbelieved in solely on grounds of political predilection. Everyone believes in the atrocities of the enemy and disbelieves in those of his own side, without ever bothering to examine the evidence. Recently, I drew up a table of atrocities during the period between 1918 and the present. There was never a year when atrocities were not occurring somewhere or other, and there was hardly a single case when the left and the right believed in the same story simultaneously. And stranger yet, at any moment the situation can suddenly reverse itself, and yesterday's proof to the hilt atrocity story can become a ridiculous lie, merely because the political landscape has changed. In the present war, we are in the curious situation that our atrocity campaign was done largely before the war started, and done mostly by the left, the people who normally pride themselves on their incredulity. In the same period, the right, the atrocity mongers of 1914-18, to 18, were gazing at Nazi Germany and flatly refusing to see any evil in it. Then, as soon as war broke out, it was the pro-Nazis of yesterday who were repeating horror stories, while the anti-Nazis suddenly found themselves doubting whether the Gestapo really existed. Nor was this solely the result of the Russo-German pact. It was partly because, before the war, the left had wrongly believed that Britain and Germany would never fight, and were therefore able to be anti-German and anti-British simultaneously. Partly also because official war propaganda, with its disgusting hypocrisy and self-righteousness, always tends to make thinking people sympathise with the enemy. Part of the price we paid for the systematic lying of 1914-18 to 18 was the exaggerated pro-German reaction which followed. During the years 1918-33, to 33, you were hooted at in left-wing circles if you suggested that Germany bore even a fraction of responsibility for the war. 
In all the denunciations of Versailles I listened to during those years, I don't think I ever once heard the question, what would have happened if Germany had won, even mentioned, let alone discussed? So also with atrocities. The truth, it is felt, becomes untruth when your enemy utters it. Recently I noticed that the very people who swallowed any and every horror story about the Japanese in Nanking in 1937 refused to believe exactly the same stories about Hong Kong in 1942. There was even a tendency to feel that the Nanking atrocities had become, as it were, retrospectively untrue because the British government now drew attention to them. But unfortunately, the truth about atrocities is far worse than that they are lied about and made into propaganda. The truth is that they happen. The fact often adduced as a reason for scepticism, that the same horror stories come up in war after war, merely makes it rather more likely that these stories are true. Evidently, they are widespread fantasies, and war provides an opportunity of putting them into practice. Also, although it has ceased to be fashionable to say so, There is little question that what one may roughly call the whites commit far more and worse atrocities than the reds. There is not the slightest doubt, for instance, about the behaviour of the Japanese in China. Nor is there much doubt about the long tail of fascist outrages during the last ten years in Europe. The volume of testimony is enormous, and a respectable proportion of it comes from the German press and radio. These things really happened. That is the thing to keep one's eye on. They happened even though Lord Halifax said they happened. The raping and butchering in Chinese cities, the tortures in the cellars of the Gestapo, the elderly Jewish professors flung into cesspools, the machine gunning of refugees along the Spanish roads. They all happened, and they did not happen any the less because the Daily Telegraph has suddenly found out about them when it is five years too late. Part 3 Two memories, the first not proving anything in particular, the second, I think, giving one a certain insight into the atmosphere of a revolutionary period. Early one morning, another man and I had gone out to snipe at the fascists in the trenches outside Huesca. Their line and ours here lay 300 yards apart, at which range our aged rifles would not shoot accurately. But by sneaking out to a spot about a hundred yards from the fascist trench, you might, if you were lucky, get a shot at someone through the gap in the parapet. Unfortunately, the ground between was a flat beet field, with no cover except a few ditches, and it was necessary to go out while it was still dark, and return soon after dawn, before the light became too good. This time no fascists appeared, and we stayed too long and were caught by the dawn. We were in a ditch, but behind us were 200 yards of flat ground with hardly enough cover for a rabbit. We were still trying to nerve ourselves to make a dash for it when there was an uproar and a blowing of whistles in the fascist trench. Some of our aeroplanes were coming over. At this moment, a man, presumably carrying a message to an officer, jumped out of the trench and ran along the top of the parapet in full view. He was half-dressed and was holding up his trousers with both hands as he ran. I refrained from shooting at him. It is true that I am a poor shot and unlikely to hit a running man at a hundred yards, and also that I was thinking chiefly about getting back to our trench while the fascists had their attention fixed on the aeroplanes. Still, 
I did not shoot partly because of that detail about the trousers. I had come here to shoot at, to shoot at fascists, but a man who is holding up his trousers isn't a fascist. He is visibly a fellow creature similar to yourself, and you don't feel like shooting at him. What does this instant demonstrate? Nothing very much, because it is the kind of thing that happens all the time, in all wars. The other is different. I don't suppose that in telling it I can make it moving to you who read it, but I ask you to believe that it is moving to me as an instant characteristic of the moral atmosphere of a particular moment in time. One of the recruits who joined us while I was at the barracks was a wild-looking boy from the back streets of Barcelona. He was ragged and barefooted. He was also extremely dark, Arab blood, I dare say, and made gestures you do not usually see a European make. One in particular, the arm outstretched, the palm vertical, was a gesture characteristic of Indians. One day, a bundle of cigars, which you could still buy dirt cheap at that time, was stolen out of my bunk. Rather foolishly, I reported this to the officer, and one of the scallywags I have already mentioned promptly came forward and said quite untruly that 25 pesetas had been stolen from his bunk. For some reason, the officer instantly decided that the brown-faced boy must be the thief. They were very hard on stealing in the militia, and in theory people could be shot for it. The wretched boy allowed himself to be led off to the guardroom to be searched. What most struck me was that he barely attempted to protest his innocence. In the fatalism of his attitude, you could see the desperate poverty in which he had been bred. The officer ordered him to take his clothes off. With a humility which was horrible to me, he stripped himself naked and his clothes were searched. Of course, neither the cigars nor the money were there. In fact, he had not stolen them. What was most painful of all was that he seemed no less ashamed after his innocence had been established. That night, I took him to the pictures and gave him brandy and chocolate. But that too was horrible. I mean the attempt to wipe out an injury with money. For a few minutes, I had half believed him to be a thief, and that could not be wiped out. Well, a few weeks later, at the front, I had trouble with one of the men in my section. By this time, I was a cabo or corporal, in command of twelve men. It was static warfare, horribly cold, and the chief job was getting sentries to stay awake and at their posts. One day a man suddenly refused to go to a certain post, which he said, quite truly, was exposed to enemy fire. He was a feeble creature, and I seized hold of him and began to drag him towards his post. This roused the feelings of the others against me, for Spaniards, I think, resent being touched more than we do. Instantly, I was surrounded by a ring of shouting men. Fascist! Fascist! Let that man go! This isn't a bourgeois army! Fascist! Etc, etc. As best I could in my bad Spanish, I shouted back that orders had got to be obeyed, and the row developed into one of those enormous arguments by means of which discipline is gradually hammered out in revolutionary armies. Some said I was right, others said I was wrong. But the point is that the one who took my side the most warmly of all was the brown-faced boy. As soon as he saw what was happening, he sprang into the ring and began passionately defending me. With his strange wild Indian gesture, he kept exclaiming, He's the best corporal we've got. No hay cabo como él. Later on, he applied for leave to exchange into my section.
why is this incident touching to me? Because in any normal circumstances, it would have been impossible for good feelings ever to be re-established between this boy and myself. The implied accusation of theft would not have been made any better, probably somewhat worse, by my efforts to make amends. One of the effects of safe and civilised life is an immense oversensitiveness, which makes all the primary emotions seem somewhat disgusting. Generosity is as painful as meanness, gratitude as hateful as ingratitude. But in Spain, in 1936, we were not living in a normal time. It was a time when generous feelings and gestures were easier than they ordinarily are. I could relate a dozen similar incidents, not really communicable, but bound up in my own mind with the special atmosphere of the time. The shabby clothes and the gay-coloured revolutionary posters, the universal use of the word comrade, the anti-fascist ballads printed on flimsy paper and sold for a penny, the phrases like international proletarian solidarity, pathetically repeated by ignorant men who believed them to mean something. Could you feel friendly towards somebody and stick up for him in a quarrel after you had been ignominiously searched in his presence for property you were supposed to have stolen from him? No, you couldn't. But you might if you had both been through some emotionally widening experience. That is one of the byproducts of revolution, though in this case it was only the beginnings of a revolution and obviously foredoomed to failure. Part four. Uh, before I start, this will be the last uh, bit I read out because um, time is getting on. Um, also, apologies for any background noise from my cat again. Uh, now, this bit in part four. Yes, I see you, Molly. This bit in part four. Um, well, I don't want to stress the obvious, but uh, you will see quite explicitly how uh, the Spanish War um, inspired uh, Animal Farm in 1984 in particular here and many of the Orwellian themes that are now so famous to us. Anyway, part four. The struggle for power between the Spanish Republican parties is an unhappy, far-off thing which I have no wish to revive at this date. I only mention it in order to say, believe nothing, or next to nothing, of what you read about internal affairs on the government side. It is all, from whatever source, party propaganda, that is to say, lies. The broad truth about the war is simple enough. The Spanish bourgeoisie saw their chance of crushing the labour movement and took it, aided by the Nazis and by the forces of reaction all over the world. It is doubtful whether more than that will ever be established. I remember saying once to Arthur Kostler, her history stopped in 1936, at which he nodded in immediate understanding. We were both thinking of totalitarianism in general, but more particularly of the Spanish Civil War. Early in life, I had noticed that no event is ever correctly reported in a newspaper, but in Spain, for the first time, I saw newspaper reports which did not bear any relation to the facts, not even a relationship which is implied in an ordinary lie. I saw great battles reported where there had been no fighting, and complete silence where hundreds of men had been killed. I saw troops who had fought bravely, denounced as cowards and traitors, and others who had never seen a shot fired, hailed as the heroes of imaginary victories. 
and I saw newspapers in London retailing these lies and eager intellectuals building emotional superstructures over events that had never happened. I saw, in fact, history being written not in terms of what happened, but of what ought to have happened according to various party lines. Yet in a way, horrible as all this was, it was unimportant. It concerned secondary issues, namely the struggle for power between the Comintern and the Spanish left-wing parties, and the efforts of the Russian government to prevent revolution in Spain. But the broad picture of the war which the Spanish government presented to the world was not untruthful. The main issues were what it said they were. But as for the fascists and their backers, how could they come even as near to the truth as that? How could they possibly mention their real aims? Their version of the war was pure fantasy, and in the circumstances, it could not have been otherwise. The only propaganda line... The only propaganda line open to the Nazis and fascists was to represent themselves as Christian patriots saving Spain from a Russian dictatorship. This involved pretending that life in government Spain was just one long massacre, vide the Catholic Herald or the Daily Mail, but these were child's play compared with the continental fascist press. And it involved immensely exaggerating the scale of Russian intervention. Out of the huge pyramid of lies which the Catholic and reactionary press all over the world built up, let me take just one point. The presence in Spain of a Russian army. Devout Franco partisans all believed in this. Estimates of its strength went as high as half a million. Now, there was no Russian army in Spain. There may have been a handful of airmen and other technicians, a few hundred at the most, but an army there was not. Some thousands of foreigners who fought in Spain, not to mention millions of Spaniards, were witnesses of this. Well, their their testimony made no impression at all upon the Franco propagandists, not one of whom had set foot in government Spain. Simultaneously, these people refused utterly to admit the fact of German or Italian intervention, at the same time as the German and Italian press were openly boasting about the exploits of their legionaries. I have chosen to mention only one point, but in fact the whole of fascist propaganda about the war was on this level. This kind of thing is frightening to me because it often gives me the feeling that the very concept of objective truth is fading out of the world. After all, the chances are that those lies, or at any rate similar lies, will pass into history. How will the history of the Spanish War be written? If Franco remains in power, his nominees will write the history books, and, to stick to my chosen point, that Russian army which never existed will become historical fact, and schoolchildren will learn about it generations hence. But suppose fascism is finally defeated and some kind of democratic government restored in Spain in the fairly near future. Even then, how is the history of the war to be written? What kind of records will Franco have left behind him? Suppose even that the records kept on the government side are recoverable. Even so, how is a true history of the war to be written? For, as I have pointed out already, the government also dealt extensively in lies. From the anti-fascist angle, one could write a broadly truthful history of the war, but it would be a partisan history, unreliable on every minor point. Yet, after all, some kind of history will be written, 
and after those who and after those who actually remember the war are dead, it will be universally accepted. So, for all practical purposes, the lie will have become truth. I know it is the fashion to say that most of recorded history is lies anyway. I am willing to believe that history is for the most part inaccurate and biased, but what is peculiar to our own age is the abandonment of the idea that history could be truthfully written. In the past, people deliberately lied, or they unconsciously coloured what they wrote, or they struggled after the truth, well knowing that they must make many mistakes. But in each case, they believed that the facts existed and were more or less discoverable. And in practice, there was always a considerable body of fact which would have been agreed to by almost everyone. If you look up the history of the last war in, for instance, the Encyclopedia Britannica, you will find that a respectable amount of the material is drawn from German sources. A British and a German historian would disagree deeply on many things, even on fundamentals, but there would still be that body of, as it were, neutral fact on which neither would seriously challenge the other. It is just this common basis of agreement, with this implication that human beings are all one species of animal, that totalitarianism destroys. Nazi theory indeed specifically denies that such a thing as the truth exists. There is, for instance, no such thing as science. There is only German science, Jewish science, etc. The implied objective of this line of thought is a nightmare world in which the leader, or some ruling clique, controls not only the future but the past. If the leader says of such and such an event, it never happened, well, it never happened. If he says that two and two are five, well, two and two are five. This prospect frightens me much more than bombs, and after our experiences of the last few years, that is not a frivolous statement. But is it perhaps childish or morbid to terrify oneself with visions of a totalitarian future? Before writing off the totalitarian world as a nightmare that can't come true, just remember that in 1925 the world of today would have seemed a nightmare that couldn't come true. Against that shifting, phantasmagoric world in which black may be white tomorrow and yesterday's weather can be changed by decree, there are in reality only two safeguards. One is that, however much you deny the truth, the truth goes on existing, as it were, behind your back, and you consequently can't violate it in ways that impair military efficiency. The other is that so long as some parts of the earth remain unconquered, the liberal tradition can be kept alive. Let fascism, or possibly even a combination of several fascisms, conquer the whole world, and those two, two, and those two conditions no longer exist. We in England underrate the danger of this kind of thing, because our traditions and our past security have given us a sentimental belief that it all comes right in the end and the thing you most fear never really happens. Nourished for hundreds of years on a literature in which right invariably triumphs in the last chapter, we believe half instinctively that evil always defeats itself in the long run. Pacifism, for instance, is founded largely on this belief. Don't resist evil, and it will somehow destroy itself. But why should it? What evidence is there that it does? And what instance is there of a modern industrialised state collapsing unless conquered from the outside by military force? Consider, for instance, the reinstitution of slavery. 
Who could have imagined 20 years ago that slavery would return to Europe? Well, slavery has been restored under our noses. The forced labour camps all over Europe and North Africa, where Poles, Russians, Jews and political prisoners of every race toil at road-making or swamp-draining for their bare rations, are simple chattel slavery. The most one can say is that the buying and selling of slaves by individuals is not yet permitted. In other ways, the breaking up of families, for instance, the conditions are probably worse than they were on the American cotton plantations. There is no reason for thinking that this state of affairs will change while any totalitarian domination endures. We don't grasp its full implications, because in our mystical way we feel that a regime founded on slavery must collapse. But it is worth comparing the duration of the slave empires of antiquity with that of any modern state. Civilizations founded on slavery have lasted for such periods as 4,000 years. When I think of antiquity, the detail that frightens me is that those hundreds of millions of slaves on whose backs civilization rested generation after generation have left behind them no record whatever. We do not even know their names. In the whole of Greek and Roman history, how many slaves' names are known to you? I can think of two, possibly three. One is Spartacus and the other is Epictetus. Also, in the Roman room at the British Museum, there's a glass jar with the maker's name inscribed on the bottom, Felix Fessit. I have a vivid mental picture of poor Felix, a Gaul with red hair and a metal collar round his neck. But in fact, he may not have been a slave. So there are only two slaves whose names I definitely know, and probably few people can remember more. The rest have gone down into utter silence. And so ends part four and the first part of this reading. Uh, As I said, next time I will uh, finish things off. Um, I mean, I could keep going on, but this is already 35 minutes nearly. I don't want to um, keep uh, going on, even if if, uh, the words are not mine, but somebody else's uh, much uh, more... Uh, intelligent and well written uh, than my own. Uh, see what I mean when I when I when I stop looking at the the words of Orwell, I turn into a wittering wreck. Um, but despite that, despite the amazing fluency with which I speak when I'm reading other people's words, um, yes, I think it's time to leave it there, and uh, I shall. Be back with the rest of this essay in due course. I hope you enjoyed that part um, that I read. And, uh, well, yes, I could go on a lecture about uh, some things I actually thought of even as I was reading um, um, in, in terms of uh, Orwell's view of the world uh, as portrayed in his fiction. But I won't. I won't bore you with that. Now, time to go. Have a good week.